Although BA4 and BA5 are beginning to circulate across the US, COVID cases have begun to fall again after a long, if blunted, second Omicron surge. Shanghai is opening up after a draconian two-month lockdown, and millions are trying to escape the city for fear of another one. California is facing water restrictions amidst a worsening drought crisis. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. It's June, which means it's Pride Month. For millions of LGBTQ Americans and allies, Pride Month is a moment of celebration and a moment of commemoration. It's a moment to reflect on how far the community has come. Don't forget that only a few short decades ago, the idea of LGBTQ equality was openly scorned. And while progress has been made, much of that progress has only come very recently. Now to that historic Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage across the land. The historic ruling struck down the bans on same-sex marriage still in effect in 14 states, all of them in the South and the Midwest. The right of same-sex couples to marry was only enshrined into law by a Supreme Court decision in the case Obergefell v. Hodges. But the fight for LGBTQ equality goes back way further. Throughout the month of June, major cities around the country will have pride parades, where LGBTQ Americans and their allies will march in a show of solidarity and, well, pride. But the first pride parade wasn't a parade at all. It was an uprising. See, New York City police had raided the Stonewall Inn, a popular gay bar in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, in the early morning hours of June 28, 1969. The community had had enough. For the next several nights, they organized protests across Greenwich Village, eventually forming activist organizations demanding the right to live freely. The movement birthed three gay liberation newspapers. And the next year, there were gay pride parades commemorating Stonewall in L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, and New York. And there have been across the country ever since. The Stonewall uprisers were responding to a set of laws that simply criminalized their existence. Just for being them. They were demanding the right to live freely as LGBTQ people, not to be harassed and to have equal access to civic institutions, like legal marriage, independent of who they loved or how they identified. The activism birthed that Stonewall saved lives. When HIV hit the gay community in the late 80s, the scientific and medical establishments largely ignored the disease. After all, it was seen to be a disease of gay men, a marginalized community. Standing on the shoulders of giants, the community built ACT UP, founded in New York in 1987, specifically to confront the medical establishment using tactics designed to both confront and make news. More on that in a future episode. Because of these nascent movements for LGBTQ rights and equality, most of us alive today have watched the tide turn toward equality. Not only have we watched the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and marriage equality, but we've seen a broad change in culture on these issues. In 2004, just 18 years ago, 60% of Americans opposed marriage equality. Today, 61% of Americans support it. And while that is progress, as is so often the case, it can come two steps forward and one step back. Over the past several years, we've seen a slate of anti-LGBTQ policies proposed across the country. Since 2018, nearly 670 have been proposed according to the ACLU. 2022 has seen the biggest spike of all. In this year alone, not even halfway through, we've seen 238 bills proposed, specifically targeting LGBTQ people. That's more than the 191 proposed last year. The vast majority of them target trans people, restricting access to everything from healthcare to bathrooms to school sports. You probably already heard about this one. Florida's controversial legislation passing now sent to the governor there tonight. It's called the Parental Rights in Education Bill. Critics call it the Don't Say Gay Bill. Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, signed the Don't Say Gay Bill into law at the end of March. The law reads, and I quote, 
classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. Though it bans public school teachers from holding classroom discussions about sexual orientation and gender identity, the legislation is intentionally intended to be open-ended. And the enforcement is insidious, allowing parents to sue school districts, leaving it open to the strictest interpretation of the most extreme parents at a school. Not to be outdone, Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued an executive order that orders members of the general public to report parents of transgender minors who appear to be receiving gender-affirming care. It has rarely been more grim. Policies targeting LGBTQ young people deliberately designed to exclude and to marginalize people at their most vulnerable moments are having a profound impact on mental health. A survey by The Trevor Project, an organization focused on suicide prevention and crisis intervention among LGBTQ youth, found that 42% of all LGBTQ young people and more than half of trans and non-binary young people had seriously contemplated suicide. More than half. Two out of three specifically said that anti-LGBTQ legislation affected their mental health. And for good reason. These kinds of bills fundamentally alter the very foundation of a young person's life. Whether or not you can confide in a trusted teacher or counselor, whether or not you and your parents can safely make a decision regarding gender-affirming health care, these are foundational. And those foundations are deliberately being targeted by homophobic lawmakers, all to play to their base. I wanted to get a deeper understanding of the impact of these laws in this moment of backsliding on LGBTQ equality on the mental health of young people from this community. Heather Zadie is a mental health provider specializing in care for LGBTQ folks. She joined me to talk about these bigoted laws, their impacts on LGBTQ mental health, and what allies can do to support. Here's Heather Zadie. Okay, can you introduce yourself for the tape? Sure. My name is Heather Zadie, and I'm a clinical social worker from Brooklyn, New York. Great. And um, I'd love to hear a little bit about um, about your practice. Uh, what um, what kinds of patients uh, do you see and, and, and what are your goals uh, with your patients or what kind of goals do your patients come to you uh, around? Sure. So I've been working in Brooklyn for 10 years, just a little over 10 years. Um, and I, I have a couple of specializations. One is working within the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and that's been a passion of mine since I, I began my practice. And another is working with dialectical behavioral therapy, or DBT, uh, which is a form of therapy that was created in 1995 by Dr. Marshall Linehan. Um, it's really wonderful, and um, it treats a, a variety of issues. Um, so really anyone is welcome in my practice. I like working with individuals and couples, um, but again, uh, my main focus and passion is working with the LGBT plus community. Um, and some goals for my practice are um, working with um, young people, youth and teens that are um, recently coming out or also recently um, getting gender affirming treatment and helping them through that um, often difficult process. I'd love to, to zoom in, you know, given the, the subject of our conversation today on some of the, the unique challenges that members of the LGBT community face um, in terms of mental health. And, you know, obviously when we think about mental health, the, you know, the, the first word is mental. And so we think it's kind of in your head, but really so much of what happens in your head happens outside uh, of, of, of you and the circumstances in which you are living the, the, the opportunities that you face or you don't have, the, the challenges that uh, are in your way, the ways that people interact with you as a function of who you are in society and the way that people think about you. And also so much of that is shaped by the norms and the, and the, and the laws and the policies of a particular community. I wanted to ask you about the role that stigma and acceptance play in the mental health of LGBT folk. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and before I get into that, I'm just going to um, you know, give some information. So LGBT individuals, particularly youth and teens, are a vulnerable population because of high instances of mental health issues within the community. And this increases in, uh, tremendously um, with young people of color and intersecting oppressions. So some data, um, LGBT youth are twice as likely as heterosexual peers to develop feelings of depression and hopelessness, and four times as likely to attempt suicide. Um, even more so, prevalence of psychiatric conditions among transgender teens is at a whopping 78%. Interestingly, those teens who are able to receive gender-affirming health care are 60% less likely to be depressed and 73% less likely to contemplate suicide than those who haven't received that care. Hmm. So when we see teenagers getting the treatment that they need and deserve, those numbers decrease uh, tremendously. And that, that's really a huge number. And when we're talking about um, you know, uh, suicidal ideation and attempts and completion, this is truly a life or death issue. True, yeah. So we talked about, um, you mentioned stigma and how um, that can play a part in um, mental health. And of course, you know, some mental health issues come internally from you know, in mental health you know, imbalances. Uh, but I think for the majority of LGBT teenagers, uh, stigma plays a huge role in this. Social stigma contributes to things like isolation, uh, rejection, and uh, fear of seeking treatment or support or help from that isolation and rejection. Rejection and marginalization make you feel for their physical, social, and emotional safety. And that, in turn, of course, prevents people from thriving. Social stigma is, of course, a major catalyst to the laws that are currently being enacted and often passed, limiting the rights of LGBT plus youth and their families. Um, this includes laws that prevent people from using the bathroom that corresponds to their gender identity. And one study says that college students who are denied gender appropriate facilities are 45% more likely to attempt suicide. You know, so this stigma and marginalization uh, in turn is creating, like I said, tremendous numbers of um, depression, suicide attempts and suicide completion. We'll be back with more with Heather Zadie after this break. My partner Sara is a is a mental health provider, and uh, we sometimes neglect the fact that you know mental health care is a health care, and then B, it is life and death health care, um, and. You know, the, the nature of depression um, is that it can end a life um, by way of, of suicide. And the, the point that you bring up about the, the long-term consequences of, of mental health is critical. When it comes to stigma and uh, acceptance, one of the important aspects of the ways that people get stigmatized is it's not just that you're not accepted, it's that you're actively told that you don't belong. And um, that comes in the form of of bullying, which can be extremely traumatic um, for folks, particularly when it's chronic and it lasts in a place that you can't leave, right? And if you're being bullied at school, for example, you can't just not go to school uh, as a function of it. And then with the advent of social media, um, that bullying doesn't just end when you leave a particular space. It, it continues in the online space from there. How often are LGBT youth being bullied and, and what are the consequences of that trauma? Uh, oh, bullying is happening 
so much these days, and I think schools are often doing a good job of preventing it at school. Not always, but you know, more so now than in the past. What now we're seeing, I think, is bullying happening actively from the government and from mm-hmm. the states that are creating this legislature that is silencing LGBT uh, youth and their families. Um, so you know, we'll get more into this new legislature, uh, you know, as we go on, but. Um, you know, we are six months through the year right now, just the beginning, you know, it's the beginning of June. Um, almost 240 anti-gay bills have been introduced in 2022 alone, and almost 670 bills since uh, 2018. Hmm. So, you know, we're talking about bullying on a micro level. It can happen in schools, it can happen in families. Um, but when we're looking at it at a macro level, we're really, you know, these youth and teens are getting the message that they don't have the right to exist. Um, they barely don't have the, the right to speak about themselves. You know, and how does that reflect on a, a kid to hear, you know, my identity is unspeakable? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I want to I wanna zoom in there because I, I think that is such a, an important subtext of this moment uh, in uh, our country and particularly when it comes to the experience of LGBT uh, youth and, and in adults, um, is that you have this uh, bullying on the part of government, as as you really succinctly called it, um, what is the experience of that for uh, the folks that you take care of when they hear that, when they see that, when they see those laws being passed by people who ostensibly represent them? What is what is the set of experiences um, that, that goes through their mind and, and how does that show up when it comes to their mental health? You know, it's challenging as a clinician. And uh, I've heard, you know, teachers saying it's challenging now for them. It's challenging for um, school psychologists and social workers, because so much of our work is reminding, you know, queer youth that they are worthy, that they are lovable, that they are good enough just by being them. But then, you know, they're getting this message, you know, on the other side that uh, they aren't, you know, they're not worthy, they're not good enough, they're, like I said, unspeakable. Um, and so, you know, this mixed message that makes it very hard for us as clinicians to support these young people. So what I see coming in is a lot of fear. You know, um, what right could I potentially lose next? Um, You know, terror. Um, If I can't use the bathroom of my gender identity, what violence, you know, might be waiting for me if I go into, quote unquote, the wrong bathroom, you know? Uh, Depression, sadness, uh, significant hopelessness. Um, you know, the fear that not only is this not going to improve, but it's going to get considerably worse. Um, am I not going to be able to marry the partner of my choosing? Am I not going to be able to adopt if I'd like to? Uh, so, you know, there's a multitude of negative emotions that are coming through. Um, and, you know, it's scary as a clinician often to see. And one of the things that, it, at least in a ostensibly representative government, and unfortunately, when you, when you look at the kind of policies that are being passed, it's it's quite clear that we have this rising minoritarianism that is threatening the very heart of the question of representation. But one of the things about democratic government is that, in theory, um, the laws and policies that are passed are supposed to be representative of the, the communities in which you live. This is how you know majority is supposed to rule, but with the sustaining of, of minority rights, although that's falling apart entirely. Um, the thing that happens, though, is that when laws and policies get passed, there is an implicit condoning of of a certain kind of behavior. When government itself takes it on itself 
to uh, belittle, exclude, and bully a group of people, it's sending a message to everybody else who lives in those societies. And I want to ask, you know, how is how are these policies being processed at the school level? Have we seen an uptick in uh, the kind of bullying or the kind of discrimination um, at the individual level uh, because of these policies? I think um, one of the major fears that I have is that um, schools are, you know, they don't want to get sued. Um, they don't want to go through that. They don't want to lose money. And so the fear is that some uh, programs that might be helpful for LGBT teens uh, might be cut because, you know, um, perhaps, and, you know, often these bills are so broadly written that, um, you know, the most conservative stance, you know, can say, okay, you know, I don't like that you know, XYZ is being spoken about, and so I have a right to sue. Um, and as a result, I think schools can have a reaction of, okay, so we're not going to do these programs because, you know, we're afraid of mm-hmm. what might come of them. I think also um, when parents and other students, you know, hear uh, it's okay, you know, to request that these people be silenced in school. Well, if school says it's okay and the government says it's okay, I certainly can think it's okay. You know, I can, I think it's okay to, you know, um, speak in a discriminatory manner. Um, they say it's good, you know, so it, it, it can give sort of um, permission uh, to mistreat people. And one of the, uh, the, the consequences of this, as you talked about, Heather, is this, this sort of freezing up, right? Which is to say that these laws um, are almost explicitly written to be nonspecific. It doesn't really quite say what you can't say. It just says, generally, there are these things that you can be held accountable to saying, and that's left up to the interpretation of, we'll just say, the most uh, angry, most hateful member of the school community um, to then enforce. And the idea here is that by not specifying exactly what's being proscribed by the law, then people are going to interpret it um, as extreme as possible because they know that that interpretation then gets left to the courts for an interpretation. And you talked a little bit about the kinds of programs that go unfunded uh, and, and, and un. Um, operationalized because of that. You talked about the kind of permission structure that it, it builds builds up for. But what have we heard from, you know, LGBT teachers or administrators um, in, in schools that are being targeted, like, you know, the, the situation in Florida with the don't don't say gay law that was uh, recently signed into law by DeSantis? Well, I think um, there are so many teachers and administrations, administrators that I know that would really like to speak out. But Florida has sort of created a gag order where they're unable to. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, people are afraid for their jobs. And I think one of the really sad things about this is that um, for many um, LGBT plus teens, the first supporters that they have is people in school. So teachers, um, other students, perhaps uh, guidance counselors. And when this school staff is silenced from a, actively supporting them, and B, speaking out against things that don't support them, you know, we're losing a, a tremendous uh, support uh, within the community. So um, I think that, you know, people who work in Florida schools are trying to do the best that they can, but unfortunately, this law has this detrimental effect of quieting the classroom and also quieting them from speaking out outside of the classroom. Mm-hmm. And. You know, we think of this as a law that was passed in Florida, right? But um, but it, it, the, the the reverberations are way bigger than just one state. 
in 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 the community that you, that you treat um, has this come up with with your patients? Yeah, I mean, so I think that the bill in Florida got a tremendous amount of press, um, and so you know, people are mostly speaking about that. But if I may for a second, I'd like to just go through some other laws that have uh, you know um, either been introduced or or now passed. So the bill in Florida, the you know parental rights in education, um, or don't say gay, uh, almost the exact same one um, is in the legislature in Louisiana. There is one in Oklahoma that prevents people from using the bathroom that corresponds to their gender identity. There is one in South Carolina that permits healthcare providers to refuse gender affirming treatment that quote violates the practitioner's conscience. So you know if we're looking for broad language, that's just a really big example of it. Mm. Um, there's one in Missouri and Tennessee that doesn't allow students to play on the sports teams that correspond to their gender identity. Another in Louisiana, oh, I'm sorry, one in Alabama that was signed by the governor last month stating that, quote, all practices to alter or affirm a minor's sexual identity or perception not be withheld from parents. And this is extremely dangerous, you know. So if we have a kid that you know, is coming into the classroom or perhaps the doctor's office um, and is presenting in the gender identity that they feel comfortable with, but they cannot perform that gender identity at home because it's not safe there, suddenly we've created an unsafe home environment. You know, and as we know, uh, the issue with homelessness is, is, you know, a whopping one among LGBT youth. So when we see laws enacted like this, you know, not only are we contributing to negative mental health effects, but also, you know, an uptick in, in LGBT homelessness. And that, those are very scary numbers. As we think about um, about where we go from here in, in this particular moment, uh, what are members of the community doing to push back, to organize against this, to um, take back some of the, the narrative about the impact that this has on real people in, in real communities? So, you know, I, I'm still very hopeful, even though... Um, you know, all this is happening, you know, because we're seeing uh, action, a lot of action on so many levels. You know, when I see footage of um, teenagers and youth in Florida staging walkouts, doing uh, protests, uh, you know, uh, shouting, we say gay at the top of their lungs, it gives me hope. These bills are horrible, but they've really, uh, they've woken a sleeping giant. So, you know, these students are speaking out and doing a beautiful job of doing so. Um, there's gay rights groups that are also speaking out. Um, and, you know, uh, Equality Florida, um, in partnership with the National Center for Lesbian Rights, are suing the state of Florida on the basis that this bill violates free speech and equal protection and due process. Um, Florida teachers, like I said, are, are speaking out to the best of their ability. Um, and there's a huge push by activist groups also to get out there for every single election possible and vote out homophobic politicians. So, you know, I have a big list of things that, you know, we can do as allies um, to, to help here. Um, being extremely attentive to your politicians' views on these bills and LGBT rights um, as a whole is going to be really number one there. From folks who are not part of the community but want to be effective allies, what are those things that uh, that that we ought to be doing? So um, speaking out as far and wide as you can. So you know, I tell people on the micro level. So you know, among your family, among your friends, make them aware of these bills if they aren't, so that they can also uh, become active in fighting against it. And then also speaking out on the macro level. 
reaching out to your local and also federal politicians and letting them know your views on such bills. Um, clearly stand out as an ally by confronting language and behaviors that you see as discriminatory, being politically engaged and making sure that the people that you vote for do not support this bigoted legislation. Uh, use and respect gender pronouns. So introducing yourself and stating your preferred pronouns helps other people feel safe doing the same. So I might say, you know, my name is Heather Zadie, my pronouns are she and her. You know, it might seem obvious to some people that those might be my pronouns, but it's not obvious for everyone. But me saying that um, invites other people to be able to feel more comfortable sharing their own. Educating yourself on LGBT plus issues and staying updated on the challenges of the community now that's pretty, pretty easy to do, um, you know, but just by, um, you know, watching the news. But like I said, there are some bills like the Florida bill that were really well covered and some aren't. So making sure that you um, stay aware of maybe the bills that aren't uh, as portrayed in the media as others. Um, you can contact your local LGBT groups to see what they're doing to help LGBT youth and teens and seeing if you can volunteer your time or if you don't have time, make a donation. And I think most importantly, Reminding the young people in your life that you are fighting for them and they are not alone in this. I think that when um, allies that are outside of the LGBT community really make it known that they are supportive, that, that speaks to young people. And I think that can really actively fight against the, the negative um, things that they're hearing from the other side. As someone who spends a lot of time thinking about the mental health of LGBT folks, um, what what is it that we're missing? Like what, what what aspect of the conversation isn't being covered that you really wish people just understood? I think, um, you know, people just want to be accepted for who they are. So doing your best to understand who a person is based on who they are, not about maybe what your assumption is about their assumption based on what a person might look like. Um, you know, what we really want to do is ask more questions, you know, ask like what pronouns make you feel most comfortable? Um, how does it feel when I talk about this? What can I do to support you? Listening, you know, more than speaking sometimes um, and just being present, being a, a, a present in the person's life and knowing that um, they can come to you when they need support and care is gonna give so much to that individual and in turn the community. We'll be back with more with Heather Zadie after this break. If if you could sit down with uh, with Ron DeSantis or any legislator or uh, or governor who's trying to advance um, these kinds of laws, what would you share with them? Boy, what I wouldn't give to sit down with Ron DeSantis. <laughs> so um, there's a few things I would say. Number one, talking about LGBT uh, people and communities and identities does not turn a person gay. Number two, it's never too early to talk about these identities. Um, you know, there is... Um, as one study that says that 40% of gay men knew that they were gay before the age of 10. So when DeSantis says uh, it's not quote unquote age appropriate between kindergarten and third grade, I say wrong. 
That's not true. Um, some of my patients have known that they were gay or trans by the age of five. Um, and that this culture of silence, uh, you know, you're doing the exact opposite of what you want to do. Because what's really happening is the whole world is talking about, you know, this case and how wrong it is. So while you might be attempting to silence the classroom, you know, you have so many people now speaking out against you, Governor DeSantis, and also this bill. You know, so your attempt at silence um, is a massive failure. And then, you know, we're uh, in June, which is Pride Month. And, um, you know, this is a moment where you think about the the, the history of uh, anti-LGBT repression and the way that the community rose up against that. And, you know, as, as a student of the uh, HIV AIDS movement, um, it was uh, it was a disease that was largely neglected because it was seen as a disease of gay men. And it was uh, a movement of gay folks who stood up and said, not only uh, are you going to accept us, but you are going to take this disease seriously. You're going to invest um, time, energy, and funds to understand it and to provide treatment. And, you know, in so many ways, um, it's not just the folks who... Uh, who have HIV in America that have benefited from that, but really it's the global HIV uh, community that has benefited from that. Um, in this moment, as you reflect on where we are and, and where the, 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 the struggle for equality and freedom are, um, what gives you hope uh, in this moment? So um, looking at the trajectory um, of you know, gay rights in this country and you know, how we've moved forward, um, looking at the activists of the past, you know, the Marsha P. Johnsons, the Edie Windsors, um, the fight that they, uh, you know, that they had to go through in order to get us where we are, knowing that now it's our turn to fight, you know, to keep moving forward um, for our young people. Um, I once heard Barack Obama speak, and he said, you know, when when you get scared, look at the trajectory of this country. Uh, how things have improved. And yes, things have slowed down. Sometimes we've gone backwards. But when we look at where we started versus where we are now, I have a lot of hope for where we're going. And especially when I see the activism of the youth in our country today, I have a lot of hope for the future that things are going to continue to improve. Well, Heather, we really uh, deeply appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us, to, to teach us, to share your experiences and uh, to talk to us about about where where we are, where we've been, and where we're headed. Um, that was Heather Zadie. She is a mental health practitioner in Brooklyn, New York, and she joined us uh, to talk a bit about the effects of anti-LGBT stigma uh, and bullying, and um, and what we can do uh, to face it on and and and, and overcome it. I uh, really appreciate your time and your work and your activism. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for having me. It was, it's really great to be here. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Thankfully, for the first time since April, the average nationwide number of COVID cases appears to be falling. That said, two new Omicron subvariants, BA4 and BA5, which caused another surge in South Africa, are circulating across the U.S. It brings the total number of subvariants actively circulating to five. While the fall in cases is definitely a good thing, this raises questions about the long-term future of the pandemic. If five subvariants each evolved for being able to evade the immune response to the last one, can co-occur simultaneously, what does it say about the state of our overall immunity? The high probability is that our general immunity will build up slowly with sporadic cases continuing to break through over time. 
This makes sense considering that a large proportion of common colds are caused by coronaviruses. And we keep getting colds throughout our lives because there are an ever-changing number of consistently evolving common cold viruses. At best, we can hope that SARS-CoV-2 fades into the background as just another genre of that. At worst, though, it can remain far more virulent, causing far worse disease. In that respect, a new analysis from the consumer rights organization Public Citizen issued a new report that showed that COVID variants have killed nearly as many people as the original wild-type variant. And remember, most of the variants occurred after we had learned far more about how to prevent infections, how to care for COVID-infected patients, and we developed vaccines. So far from fading, COVID variants remain dangerous. Just last week, social media was abuzz with videos of Shanghai residents breaking out of their quarantines after nearly two months effectively in captivity, the consequence of China's zero-COVID policies. Since, Shanghai residents have struggled to leave the city for fear of yet another lockdown. The train stations are packed, and some are making treks to less crowded places by foot. And if you live in Southern California, like most of my Crooked Media colleagues, you're now living under water restrictions to address the state's worsening drought. According to the U.S. Drought Monitor, more than 97% of the state is under severe drought right now. The restrictions right now focus on limiting the watering of lawns, but authorities have also advised against baths and long showers. Now, why am I covering this? Because it's a reminder of the impact of climate change on human welfare. Sure, a brown lawn may not be a big deal, but when your waterways are at 20% capacity, the downstream, no pun intended, implications could be. That's it for today. One more thing before I go, I've got a special announcement. I've got a new YouTube channel I need you to check out. I break down the issues of the day in five to 10 minute explainers. If you like my monologues at the top of the show, you'll love this channel. Go to youtube.com slash Abdul El Sayed. That's youtube.com slash A-B-D-U-L-E-L-S-A-Y-E-D. And don't forget to like and subscribe and tell your friends. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producer is Tara Terpstra. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. And the theme song is by Takao Suzawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. 